Welcome back. Um, this is our last study in the book of Zechariah. And um, I'm sure that by now you all realize that it has a well-deserved reputation as being the most difficult book in the entire Bible to interpret. In fact, Martin Luther, in his exposition of the book of Zechariah, when he came to chapter 14, he had this to say, I give up. I have no idea what the prophet is trying to say. And I appreciate Luther's humility there. I mean, it uh, would have been easy for someone as gifted as he were to try to bluff his way through it a bit. And, and so we ought to adopt that sort of humility when we approach God's word and acknowledge there are things we don't understand. Maybe someone else does but I personally don't. Nevertheless, um, we do have a couple hundred years of, or several hundred years of Bible study that has taken place from Luther to today. And I think we have a clearer idea of what it means, even if we can't nail down all the details. But I do think if you've been with us through all 14 chapters, um, you can at least emotionally identify with Luther's frustration of how difficult this book can be to interpret. Nevertheless, I want to encourage you all to do something. I want to encourage you after we finish this study to go back and read the book of Zechariah in just one or two settings, right? You want to get the big picture. And instead of worrying about all the details, which are hard to figure out, get the big flow, get the main points. And I think what you're going to discover is the main points aren't that hard to get. And they paint a beautiful portrait of who Christ is, what he does, what he does for us, and the consequences of that throughout all of history. So you have to think back to when the book starts. Zechariah starts in his own day. There's this tiny remnant of people in Jerusalem. And they're not living quite the way they're supposed to. And God is encouraging them to get with the business, rebuild the temple. But don't think of that as doing some religious thing out there. The point of rebuilding the temple is so that God himself will dwell in their midst. And that's the key issue, God dwelling with the people that are devoted to him. And so there's a lot of emphasis about cleansing the sin out of the land and purity and holiness. And what we see very early in the book, just in chapter three, is there's a direct and beautiful answer to the question, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And that's a question we all need to ask. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And what we see in um, Zechariah chapter 3 is Jesus speaks. Joshua the high priest um, is seen as um, clothed in filthy garments. And those filthy garments symbolize his own sin, but also because he's the high priest, they symbolize the sins of all the people. And Jesus commands that those filthy garments be taken away from him and he be clothed with righteous garments, with splendid garments, right? And those garments represent the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then we're told just a little bit later that what God does for Joshua in the vision, he's going to do for all the people in a single day, right? Pointing forward to Christ's work on our behalf. And then Zechariah moves forward. And remember now, he's, he's back hundreds of years before Christ, but he points the people to look forward to the coming of the Messiah. And there's a lot of passages that are familiar to us. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, they structure Holy Week, the last week of Christ's life, based on Zechariah's prophecies. So a whole bunch of them are quite familiar. In particular, I want to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus didn't come simply to save a small people in the Middle East. He came to rule over the entire earth. 
So we find this in, for example, in Zechariah chapter nine, picking up in verse nine, very familiar words to, to us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But please pay attention to the next verse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, right? He's the prince of peace. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And then when we move from chapter nine to the end of the book, we see how this unfolds, right? We see what's going on in the church age. We see persecution for God's people but we also see God blessing his people. And some of those details are a bit hard to figure out. I've made a point in particular that I think that there's an emphasis on an ethnically Jewish people here who become converted. They're not blessed as ethnic Jews. They're blessed by convert, being converted and grafted into the church. Um, but there's a lot of debate around that. The big thing to see, though, is, is God intends to spread his kingdom. So start from the beginning of the book and go to the end. At the beginning of the book, we've got this small group of Jewish people struggling to be devoted to the Lord. That is, to be holy. That's what holiness means, devoted to the Lord. And by the end of the book, we look at all of creation, and even the bells on the harnesses of the horses are inscribed holy to the Lord, as are the pots and the pans. That is, we go from this struggle for having a, a temple and a little bit of holiness on earth to the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. Uh, I think if you read the whole book that way, you'll really get that big picture. And tonight, we're going to move pretty fast. Uh, chapter 14 is a pretty long chapter, and my plan is not to get too bogged down in the details. Uh, you may miss this because we're going to spend a fair amount of time on the first five verses. But I think actually moving through the whole chapter in one sitting is going to help us see the big picture. And we'll recognize there are some things that are hard to pin down, and they're going to be hard to pin down whether we spend an hour or three hours or six hours or the next year studying them. And so we're just going to get the big picture tonight, and you can do that over the coming years. Well, before we study Zechariah together and wrap this up, uh, let's go before the throne of grace and ask the Lord to bless our study together. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, and even though we freely confess there are parts of it that are hard to understand, and perhaps that's good for us, that it would continue to humble us and remind us that we do not have all the answers, but we know you as our Father, and we know that you have all the answers. And yet, Lord, we can see in some of the, the big things that are obvious to us from this portion of your word what an extraordinary plan you have in Jesus Christ to reconcile all things to yourself. We would ask that you would not only help us to understand that plan better, but in your great mercy that you would make us instruments of that plan, that we would point people beyond ourselves to Jesus Christ, and that you would use sinners as us, people who are little more than dust in ourselves, but who have been redeemed by the blood of your son and adopted into your family, that you would use even us to expand your kingdom and to be a blessing to those around us. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would someone read verses 1 through 5 for us? Verses 1 through 5. I think I can do that. Thank you, sweetheart. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but not the rest, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from this city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and, on, and all the holy ones with him. Thank you, Kristen. So um, let's get started with a few simple questions. Now, I mentioned the questions are simple. Maybe the answers aren't so simple, but the questions are pretty obvious ones uh, that we'll want to ask. And uh, one of the things I pointed out a few weeks ago is when you come to a passage that's difficult to understand, it's very helpful to focus on the things that are clearest. So you can kind of put stakes in the ground and go, well, I know this and I know this. And therefore, the stuff that isn't as clear, I've got to make it work with the things that I actually do know. And I think one of the things that's important to grasp here is when does this take place? And that makes verse five both very important, but I think in some ways pretty clear. In verse five, we're told, um, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones, that is all the saints, with him. What time in history is this passage referring to? When the Lord will come with all his saints. There is more than one possibility, but I think it really points very heavily in one direction. I think the second coming. The second coming of Christ from our one of our very wise elders. Both of our elders are very wise. Um, does anyone have a different point of view that this is not the second coming? So a few scholars have tried to suggest it could be other visitations of the Lord with his people not necessarily coming from heaven. Uh, I just don't think it works, right? First Thessalonians 3, verses 11 through 13, we read this. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's the same issue, the coming of the Lord with all his saints. And um, the very dramatic language in this chapter, uh, I think is very hard to kind of treat just as figurative language. Maybe it is figurative in some sense, but to say that, well, that just took place through history. So I think that we're talking about something at the very end of time when Christ comes again. Um, That's helpful. 
because it means that Zechariah is talking about those events that will take place right before, during, and perhaps right after the second coming. That's actually a little bit of a debate. Let's go back to the first verse. Verse 1 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. What does it mean that the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst? That's actually a little tricky. I guess you're you're getting back what was taken from you, like sort of yeah. So the, the I think the natural thing that we could start with as a first guess is God is restoring to us that which was, was taken. You know, you think of David recovering the the loot that was stolen and his family and everything um, when he was in the wilderness. Um, however, there's another possibility, and the other possibility is it's those who are invading who are dividing the spoil. That is, they're coming in, taking in Jerusalem, they're dividing your stuff as spoil, and they're taking it, and it's actually a bit ambiguous. Um, both are possible. I kind of think the second option is more likely, and that verse 3 is actually the surprise here. That is what it looks like is God's people are being plundered and they are hopeless. There's great violence being done. People are being dragged off into um, uh, exile again. And, uh, you know, women are being raped. That was a common thing in war, but it's just horrible. And then in verse three, the Lord comes and fights. So I think that's more likely, but um, it could go either way. Thoughts on that? It's not that important. I just want you to know there's there's a choice there. Go ahead. I have a question just on who it's referring to, because in the previous, some of the chapters we've been talking about how it was potentially towards the ethnic Jews, not like the church greater. Um, Mm -hmm. So where's the context in this one that we know who the people being talked about are? Well, so we're still talking about Jerusalem. So whatever you were thinking in chapter 13 and 14, it's going to be the same people. So if you think it was just referring to the church age in 13, I'm sorry, 12 and 13, you're going to think that probably here too. It is possible to swap that over. But if you have my view, which is it's ethnic Jews who in fact get converted, because remember that comes up in the previous chapter. That is, they were ethnic Jews whom God opens up a fountain of grace for and brings about their conversion. And they look upon him whom they, they pierced and they mourn for him. So my view would be that this actually is Jerusalem. I mean, it's physical Jerusalem that is now being inhabited by converted Jewish people who are, who are members of the, of, um, the church. Um, it's not the only view. We can't, if we go through all the views, we're going to get a little bit messy. I would just say that whatever you thought was true in 12 and 13, you should probably think is true here. Although I, I have come across some commentators who tried to apply 12 and 13 to the church and switch over to this being ethnic Jews here, because it's kind of hard to generalize this passage and make it like around the world. So other thoughts or questions? In verses two and three, the Lord says that all the nations will come against Jerusalem. And while the Lord will ultimately fight for Jerusalem and conquer these attackers, there will be a great deal of suffering. 
by the people in Jerusalem in that day. What would that mean to the people in Zechariah's day? That all the nations were going to attack and there's going to be all the suffering. Why is that significant? It's actually significant for us too, even if it doesn't directly relate to us. What would the alternative be? Now, on the one hand, there's God's people suffering, being persecuted, being hated and attacked. What's the alternative? Do, 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 do. Play Peace. Jeopardy here. Peace. Yeah, so one of the alternatives you could have, if you were living in the Old Testament, you could easily imagine that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah's people are going to be like invincible and untouchable. Nobody would mess with the Messiah's people because after all, the Messiah is the king. And so what we're going to end up with is peace and prosperity. What I want you to see here is Zechariah is saying, in the church age, that doesn't happen. We do not have to wait till we get to the New Testament epistles to have the already and not yet of New Testament eschatology. It's actually already there in the Old Testament. So he talks about these blessings that God's going to give his people. He talks about the Lord dramatically fighting for his people in verse three. But he's also saying that in this period, there's going to be persecution and suffering for God's people, and sometimes really intense persecution and suffering. I think that does two things for us. One thing it does for us is it prepares us, right? So that when you suffer, you don't go, oh, this is so weird. I should be suffering as one of God's people. I must be living in sin or something. Or maybe the gospel's not true. No, that's part of the message. But the other thing is, is it reminds us that we have a relationship like Jesus. We reflect Jesus into the world. But when the Messiah himself comes, he, he's abused. He's forsaken by people. He's the one that sold for 30 pieces of silver. As Jesus himself says, if they treat the master like this, you shouldn't be surprised they would treat the servants like this either. Right? So I think that big picture issue is kind of important. I think it's helpful to see the prophets knew that, right? It's not in all the prophets, but it's clearly here in Zechariah. It's not a surprise that after the Messiah comes, the people of God will still be persecuted by those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. Not everybody, by the way. Not everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ persecutes Christians, but a lot do. And this word all here, I think, is really significant. It says there's going to be a lot of hatred heaped up. I, the way I read the book of Revelation, I say, yeah, that's going to happen to Jerusalem, but it's going to happen to Christians in general all around the world. There will be a lot of hatred at different times in history that blasts out against the people of God. And it very well could be for the entire worldwide church at this time, even though Zechariah, in my judgment, is focusing on ethnic Jews in Jerusalem. Um, verses four and five speak of the Mount of Olives being split in two. Do you think that will literally happen, or do you think that's figurative language? The Lord's going to come, and it's going to split. And other mountains outside of Jerusalem are going to be made into a plain, right? Jerusalem will be lifted up. Is that physically going to happen, or is it figurative language? 
going to go with figurative. Peter goes with figurative. It's not fair when the smartest guy in the class always goes first. Um, <laughs> yeah, Peter, why do you think it's figurative? Um, kind of um, tying together some other passages, but I think of Hebrews, I think it is where the earth will be shaken. Yeah. I think the broad pattern of scripture would suggest it's going to be, it's figurative. The idea is that God's people are going to be lifted up and the symbolism here is not necessarily about literal water. We're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, we actually see in one place it was applied to the Holy Spirit with Jesus uh, talking about out of the person who believes in me, out of him will come springs of living water. That said, you know, who knows? It's in the future and there's lots of things we don't know. And God may connect some actual physical activity that also reflects what he's doing in the spiritual realm. So, you know, whatever God does is fine with all of us. Uh, any other thoughts or questions on verses one through five before we move on? Do you think the splitting could have any connection to the um, temple curtain being split, or is that not really fitting with the context of the other aspects of the passage? I kind of doubt it. That's an interesting idea. I kind of doubt it because the, the splitting of the, te the temple veil is about two things. One, it's about judgment on um, unbelieving Israel. It's basically saying, you know, ripping this thing. But it also is about access. So prior to Christ's crucifixion, only the high priest could only go once a year into the Holy of Holies. And uh, uh, this opening up is basically saying, because of Christ's death on behalf of his people, now we have unlimited access to God. I think what's going on here is neither one of those two things, but in the bigger picture, it's this dramatic blessing of God's people. And this is Jerusalem being lifted up to be the exalted place. Um, one of the things Jews would have expected with the return from the Babylonian exile, remember that's where we're at with Zechariah, was when the Messiah comes, Jerusalem is going to be the head, not the tail of the nations. And from, from the time of the exile, right, they get the Babylonians get them, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, oh, the Persians. We got to put the Persians in there, right? They're always under someone's thumb and they're expecting to be exalted. And actually, Zechariah is saying, well, the day is coming when they will be. Right? I think that's sort of the emphasis with a blessing that flows out of the presence of God. I think that's an interesting, that's a good question to ask. I just don't think it quite works. Uh, other thoughts? I was wondering about the very last sentence in verse five. And yes. It says, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Yes. Is that the second coming? I think that, that is. Yeah, that reminds me of Christ coming in the train of the saints. Yeah, so one of the things to think about when you know, Peter's talking about figurative language here is I don't know that we can make a motion picture out of all these Bible passages so that it tells a neat, clean story. They're getting at different ideas and pictures with it because you might think, well, if he's coming with all his saints, what are these saints doing in Jerusalem? Right? Well, I don't know. I can't, I can't sort those things out. The pictures that we're getting are trying to give us an image of what God is doing. And, um, they're not necessarily writing history in advance so we can go, it's Thursday, 10 o'clock. This is what's happening. And, and I don't think we can actually sort that out. But yes, sweetheart, I do think that is 
the second coming. Uh, would someone read verses six through nine for us? Six through nine. I can do that. Thank you, Jason. On that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, um, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in water, as in winter. <laughs> and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and, and his name one. Thank you, Jason. Um, oh, you distracted us with being adorable. Um, the, the question here is, um, this is a strange passage. So once again, I want to go back to this principle of start with what's clearest. And in my judgment, the clearest thing in this passage is verse 9. Out of all the verses, verse 9 is the clearest particularly the first sentence, but once you get the first sentence, the second sentence works too. The first sentence is this, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And the question is, when does that take place? When he returns. On that day? On that day, I love I love that one, Rachel. It does take place on that day. I think Flo is correct as well, when he returns. Now, we do want to say, of course, the Lord is king. But what Zechariah is talking about is that being manifest, right? We don't yet see all things under his feet. And I think in this passage, what he's saying is, in that day, we will. We will see visibly that all things are under his feet. So the Lord will be king. Well, that actually frames the rest of the passage, because as Rachel points out, it's going to happen on that day. And uh, verse 6 has that same time marker on that day. Verse 8 has that time marker on that day. They're all talking about the same time, right? So they're all talking about the day of Christ's return, or perhaps you could say the day and a little bit afterwards, right? So that, that slot. So that helps. Um, if we get that, then we have to ask the question about the second half of the verse. Um, what does it mean that on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one? I mean, isn't the Lord one now? Yeah. So what does it mean that on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one? No, no other gods will be called on. But he'll he'll be the only one. Jason, that is exactly right. So, as you all know, um, the Shema uh, from Deuteronomy six is uh, the central verse, really, in Judaism. And uh, pious Jews would normally pray it three times a day in the time of Jesus Christ. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Modern Westerners hear that primarily is a proclamation of monotheism, right? There's only one God. Well, it does say that, but actually it, it carries another idea, which is only one God for us. There'll be no other God for us than Yahweh. It's a declaration of loyalty. 
And by the way, you can see that when you read the next verse. Does anyone know off the top of their head what Deuteronomy 6, 5 is? No cheating by Googling it or looking it up. So we got, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If Silas was here, I'd get him to do it in Hebrew. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. What's the next verse? Oh, this is helpful, right? Stick this in your memory. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, you see, if you re remember that, Jason's interpretation makes a lot of sense. Zechariah is appealing back to the Shema, and he's saying, in that day, that won't just be true of a couple isolated Christians. It'll be true all over the earth, right? Those verses go to, those two sentences go together, right? The Lord will be king of all the earth, and everybody will have loyalty to the Lord in that day. Well, that makes complete sense once the Lord comes back, right, to judge the living and the dead. Does anyone have any connections with the idea that at night there will still be light? And you can't get this one wrong because whatever's in your head is a connection in your head. But if you can relate it to the Bible, that would be helpful. God is the light. God is the light. And Martha, where else do we hear that? Revelation 20. Or 21. Yeah, Revelation 20 or 22, 20. Uh, I think it's 22. Um, Revelation 22 says, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Actually, John, I think you have in Revelation 20 as well. I think you're correct there. Um, so the idea here, of course, is that's kind of what's going on is there's this extraordinary glory of the Lord and therefore, we think of night as, you know, a time of ambiguity, darkness, whatever. And that's not going to exist. I go with what Peter said earlier, though, about um, figurative language. I don't think this necessarily means there'll be no literal light and day in the new heavens and the new earth. I just don't think we know. But I think the idea here is, is you're going to always have the glory of God with you. Um, you can push back on that if you like. Did any of you come up with any connections for verse 8? where the water will flow out of Jerusalem. Which is kind of interesting, because of course, Jerusalem's a mountain, and there's going to be water flowing out of Jerusalem in that day. Any biblical connections? If you have a study Bible, I'm sure it will list some connections. I think uh, Ezekiel's vision of the temple. Elder oh, Bacon is, is on fire tonight. Yes, it, that is correct. Water flowing out and expands as it flows out. Which is really interesting, right? The water gets deeper as it goes out, which is, you know, kind of, I don't know where it's picking up extra water coming down the, the mountain there. But I draw your attention in particular to what the water does. And remember that Israel is a very dry land. It's also a place that has something called the Dead Sea, right? The water runs down, it gets really salty, and nothing can live in it. And what we're told here in this passage is, as the water flows out, talk about Ezekiel 47, as the water flows out, it renews and gives life. Let me read just a couple of verses uh, for you from Ezekiel 47. Uh, I'm going to be picking up in verses 11 and 12, but if you're taking notes, you should say Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. But its swamps and marshes will, uh, will not become fresh. They are left for salt. 
And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And if you remember in the book of Revelation, the 12 trees along the river, their leaves will be for the healing of the nations, right? So this is a vision of, uh, uh, of course, everyone in Zechariah's day would have been very familiar with Ezekiel. Um, this would have been a vision of, in that day, there's going to be great restoration. So you don't want to just think of the water flowing from Jerusalem. When you think about Ezekiel, it's flowing from the presence of the Lord. It's a way of saying the Lord, the blessings that are going to flow from the Lord are going to renew this corrupted creation. Right? Creation is not now the way that it was meant to be. And by God's grace, it is not the way that it will be for all eternity. Right? God is going to renew it. I, I think that's actually quite beautiful. Uh, let's move on from there. Uh, well, I should ask, does anyone have any questions on that? That's We're actually moving fairly quickly already. We're not really pressed for time. Any questions at all on that? Okay, I go back and read Ezekiel now. And you're going to read Ezekiel after Zechariah going, this isn't that hard. Well, who knew? Compared to Zechariah. Um, would someone read verses 10 and 11 for us? 10 and 11. Well, I'll do that. We'll let someone else read a longer passage in a moment. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Uh, that's actually really straightforward. Um, Jerusalem's going to be lifted up. Jerusalem's going to be secure. It will never be attacked successfully again, right? So that idea of security was very important. Uh, keep in mind how it still is true for Jews as Israel's been overrun uh, or attacked um, throughout their whole history, except for the time of Solomon. Um, any other thoughts or questions on that? I don't know if there's anything that jumps out other than the security and the fact that it's going to be inhabited. Anything at all? Okay, here's a longer passage for someone to read. Uh, verses 12 through 15. 12 through 15. I can read that. Thank you, Peter. And this shall be the plague that, with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot like, while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance, 
and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Hmm. Thank you. Um, once again, actually, this is not that complicated. It's kind of brutal. Um, we should realize that God is a holy God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Uh, or as I think R.C. Sproul would like to say, is um, when he first read through the Old Testament as a young adult, he discovered that this is a God who plays for keeps. He's not someone to be trifled with. Here's the key phrase I want you to remember because it applies throughout the entire Bible. The destruction of God's enemies is the salvation of God's people. I want to say that again. The destruction of God's enemies is the salvation of God's people. That's why when I talk about um, the gospel, my own definition of it, I talk about the victory of God in Jesus Christ over Satan, sin, and death on behalf of his people. Those are our biggest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Jesus tramples them into the dust, and he delivers us. So we should not be surprised that God is going to vindicate his holy name by punishing those who openly rebel against him. And he's going to vindicate his people also by punishing those who have persecuted his people. And if you think about this very vivid image, uh, imagery about how, how painful and destructive this is going to be, uh, you can just connect it very easily with the book of Revelation. Think about the book of Revelation where people are crying out that the rocks would fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, right? There, there is something that is much, much more scary than simply coming to physical calamity. And that's coming as an enemy into the hands of the living God. There are a few connections here. Um, uh, let me just confess up front. I have no idea what it means even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. Um, so you can ask that question. Maybe someone else will know. I'll ask that question. Does anyone know what that means? That even Judah will fight at Jerusalem? I really don't. I have no idea what that means. I don't even know if it means they'll fight for them or against them. I think it means fight for them, um, that, which makes good sense, but I really don't know. But I want to come back to something that Jason suggested earlier when we were talking about dividing the spoil. I think in the beginning of the passage, dividing the spoil, it makes more sense that it's the enemies of God's people who seem to be successfully plundering God's people who are dividing the spoil in their midst. But when we get to this passage, God is saying, all that gold they took, all their wealth they took, and it's not just literally gold, I'm going to return to my people, right? Uh, verse 14, the part I don't get, even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in abundance, right? Collected and given to the people of God. Right? Um, other thoughts on that? I do want you to keep in mind that saying, the destruction of God's enemies is the salvation of God's people. It's a pretty important truth. And it'll may help you make sense of a lot of the Old Testament, actually. Um, I remember when I was preaching through Nahum years and years ago at Amistad Presbyterian Church, and uh, I was reading a Catholic commentator, and they were like, there's no gospel in this passage. And I thought it was the most bizarre thing, because it was a passage about the destruction of God's enemies. I know this most bizarre thing because that passage is actually quoted in the New Testament in the context of the gospel. This is the, you know, like the good news. And um, it's because that uh, for that author, the idea of God using violence was like bad, distasteful. And um, I don't think we should be more pious than God is. Any thoughts?
Would someone read verses 16 through 19 for us? 16 to 19. Rachel, how about you? I'm going to start calling on people. How'd you like to read 16 to 19? Yep, that's fine. Thank you. You can yell okay. at me later. I always just think I talk too much anyway, so. All right. Then every, everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Um, this shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And is that where we're stopping? Or yeah, that's a good place to stop. So first of all, very excited. The Feast of Booths is back in the Bible here. Um, it, it, it is an interesting passage, or as Luther might say, I have no idea what the prophet's getting at here. Um, that's not quite true. I really think there's just two alternatives. The problem is they both have pluses and minuses to them. The question is, is this still talking about after Christ comes back? Or is it talking about something before Christ comes back? Right. So that second interpretation is often tied up with a version of post-millennialism it says the gospel is going to spread over the face of the earth. And so there's going to be this dramatic outward nations coming up to Jerusalem to worship. But of course, there's still rebellious sinners, right? And the second view, I mean, the first view, which says this is after Christ's second coming, says, well, you know, the language there about judging the nations who don't do what they're supposed to do, well, that's just figurative. It's a way of saying God's going to expect this to happen. And um, I don't know how you pick between two, those two because they both have pluses and minuses. The advantage of seeing this coming after Christ's second coming is that seems to be what the rest of the passage is really focusing on, is Christ's second coming. Um, but I will throw that out to you. Um, those are really your two big options here. Do you see the pluses and minuses of saying this is post-Christ's second coming? In which case, you have to explain this really difficult thing, which says, this shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations who do not go up to keep the Feast of Booze. Because in the new heavens and new earth, nobody's going to fit into that category. We can take that figuratively somehow. And uh, But if you put it beforehand, it doesn't quite fit as well with the rest of the passage. Does anyone have a way of untying the Gordian knot? I do have one, it doesn't untie it, but it may put it in the right context. Come on, you're a very smart group. A remarkably smart group, actually. Any way of getting past this? Back in a, a very sleepy voice says, the destruction of Jerusalem, 500. <laughs> it's not the destruction of Jerusalem, no. No. This is way into the future past the destruction of Jerusalem. Actually, we were already told that Jerusalem would be secure. That's not going to happen again. 
okay, here, here's my way of dealing with this Gordian knot, that if it doesn't apply here, Zach can come on and, and make his case. We'll, 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 give, we'll give him a three-minute speech. Um, but here's the way I approach this sort of issue. And if it doesn't fit here, it's a useful thing to keep in mind in interpreting the Bible. Just because we have a question does not mean the Bible's intending to answer it. That's a really important truth to get, right? So when we think about eschatology, we should not think that God's desire is to give us a roadmap so we can explain everything in the future. So we'll be in the in the no group. And I think that's been a real temptation in dispensational circles, but it can be a temptation outside of dispensational circles. You know, I know all these details about Christ's second coming. I'm really an insider. And I think what God is trying to motivate us to is, I am going to do this great thing in the future, and the world is going to be holy. And no, I'm not trying to give you a map so you can go check, check, check. Oh, well, this one's next, right? And so if you think of it that way, we actually don't have to answer this question. This is not a question the text is intending to answer, even if it's one that we happen to raise. Does that make sense? I'm not punting on that. I'm just saying that I think that's part of what we have to accept is God has a purpose for things. And by the way, this applies to lots of passages. If you think about interpretations of all the fights over Genesis 1 and 2, there are some things in Genesis 1 and 2 you have to insist on. God makes Adam as a direct creation and so on. And God makes the world good and there's a fall and all those sorts of things that play out in the, the New Testament. But we should remember that Moses wasn't going in, um, getting ready, the, the people ready to go into the um, promised land, trying to explain to them how many days it took to create the world and how many years ago that was. It's about God and God being the sovereign creator and in charge of everything, creation being good and an explanation why there's suffering in the world, all those sorts of things. And so I, I don't think we have to press this and say, can I fit it into my timeline? Maybe it'd be nice if we could. Um, but it probably doesn't impact our life at all if we can't. And probably, I'm not sure about this, but probably wasn't what God was intending to communicate in the first place. He wanted to encourage the people in Zechariah's day about this great work he was going to do over the next couple thousand years. David, uh, out of curiosity, what was the Feast of Booths celebrating? Oh, it was celebrating Kristen, best wife ever. <laughs> um, so the Feast of Booths is, the, is a fall harvest festival that takes place in Israel. Uh, it, it celebrates a couple of things put together. So one of them was it celebrated God delivering the people miraculously in the wilderness. And that's why they would go out of their fixed shelters to live in these temporary shelters, right? That was the idea, either a tent or maybe a lean-to. And actually in Jerusalem today, you'll see people still stick up just a couple palm branches or something uh, if the weather is nice. Um, and so it was celebrating God's deliverance in the Exodus. That's really relevant because the nations are now celebrating it. Because all the people who become, uh, and of course, if this is after the second coming, it's literally everybody, um, who become engrafted into Christ. Uh, we've been partakers in the second and greater Exodus that God accomplishes in Christ through his death and resurrection. We've been delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's also actually an aspect, though, of the Feast of Booze, which is a harvest festival. So it combines with this Exodus thing, a time of great joy. 
And I think that's part of what's going on here is every Jew, when they hear Feast of Booze and all the nations, they're going to think this is this extraordinary, joyous time of celebrating God's goodness and delivering us, right? Those things go together. And instead of it being, you know, 50,000 of us celebrating this, it's going to be this worldwide, huge event. You know, it's going to be extraordinary. So I, th I think that's really the, the point of Feast of Booze. By the way, the only Old Testament um, feasts, you know, in the feast cycle that we're told will take place in the future after Christ comes, right? So we're never told like a Passover will be celebrated. Of course, the Lord's Supper in some ways is uh, a, a continuation and beyond the Passover, uh, but the Feast of Booths is the one that we're told will be celebrated um, in the future. Would someone read verses 20 and 21 for us? 20 and 21. I can do it. Thank you. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Thank you, Jason. Um, naturally, if the preceding passage refer to Christ's second coming in the period immediately afterwards, this does too. This is the capstone on the book. And, and there's really three big ideas. They might actually seem like small ideas, but they have a very big consequence. Even the bells on the horse's harnesses are going to be inscribed holy to the Lord. E even the pots and pans in Jerusalem are going to be holy to the Lord, right? Devoted to the Lord. That's the idea. And there will be no traitor in the temple of the Lord in that day. Uh, that last one, of course, we naturally think of Jesus's symbolic judgment, sometimes called the cleansing of the temple, really a symbolic judgment of the temple, where he drives out the merchants who are turning his father's house into a house of prayer. And the Lord is saying through Zechariah, in that day, that won't be an issue at all. People aren't going to come to worship God as a means of making money. It's going to be about the Lord. Now, I want to go back to something that Elder Bacon said earlier about the use of figurative language. I think this is figurative language. I don't think we're going to have a new rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, right? That's not the point. Because actually, the whole new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven is the Holy of Holies. If you never thought about that, um, it's very interesting in the book of Revelation. The Holy of Holies is a cube. Um, the Holy of Holies and temples is a cube. The New Jerusalem, the dimensions when we're given to it, is a cube. And the whole point is, is this thing where God dwelt with his people, that the high priest could only go into once a year of his little room, as it were, is now the entire city, right? And so God's holiness is taking over all the earth, all of creation, and God will be in our midst, and we will be responding appropriately. Nobody will be going around selling trinkets or little statues of saints or something to make a few extra bucks or something. That's not going to be going on in the new heavens and the new earth. So I just want to remind you how this, this functions in the whole book. You start out in the beginning of the book with the struggle for a tiny group of people to be holy who haven't rebuilt the temple so that God could dwell in their midst. And you end up at the end of the book with God dwelling over the whole earth with his people and everything 
is holy. I think that's really a beautiful picture. I'm going to stop here, but we'll take a